This evening we're looking at these first two chapters of Joel, uh, of Joel chapters one and two. Um, we were hoping to have a couple of slides this evening, um, so I apologise, we may have to do a little bit more work with looking up a few passages here and there, so hopefully you'll bear with me. Um, we've just read through these two chapters, um, and of course we've seen that these chapters are chapters that talk a lot about destruction, but we also have a call to repentance to the people of the land, and also close to the end of chapter two, we had um, that promise um, that hope of that time when God's people will never be ashamed and we had that repeated. To start with this evening we're going to go through quite quickly these two chapters, chapters one and two, just to try and get a feel for the main message um, that, we, that we read in these chapters and then hopefully that will give us some time um, later on to then be able to pick out a few of the points that we've looked at um, and understand a bit more um, about them as we go a bit more into detail. So come with me first, um, straight to the beginning, and we'll look at verse 2 of chapter 1. And notice here, we are told um, specifically who this book is written to. Um, it's specifically, we're um, told um, that it's written specifically to the old men, um, as well as the inhabitants of the land. And the old men, of course, were the people that should have had wisdom, the people that should have been leading the people, showing the people what way um, they should be going. And God, as he often does to people that are going in the wrong way, he challenges them with a question. He asks them, Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? And then in verse 3, they're told to tell it to their children and to the generations below them. So these elder people are told to tell this, the answer to this question to the generations below them. And so they're asked, if what, um, if what we read in verse 4 is what they are seeing in their days. And in verse 4 we read, That which the palm worm hath left, hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left, the cankworm hath eaten, and that which the cankworm hath left, the caterpillar has eaten. And if we turn over to um, chapter 2 verse 25, we see that these insects are here again, but they're referred to as being an army. So we see that these insects that um, it talks about coming upon them are symbols of an army coming and taking a spoil from them, immediately followed by another army that comes um, and takes whatever spoil has been left by the previous one as a repeating process. And of course this is a rhetorical question, isn't it? Because we don't get an answer from these, the, the inhabitants of the land, but we get an answer from Joel himself. Verse 5, we read, Awake, ye drunkards, and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation is come upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are as the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. And so we see that the answer is that yes, Nations have come upon the land. A nation is come upon my land. Um, and we read that it has laid the vine waste and the fig tree um, is clean bare. And it says that the branches thereof are white. And I think what we're seeing here is when you, when you imagine a tree, or, you know, especially like a vine or a fig tree, the bark is of course brown. But when you peel that back, you see the white uh, wood underneath. And so we see here that these trees, which the fig tree and the vine are often symbols of Israel, 
And we see that this nation has had these, um, this, this tree has had these insects, these um, insects come upon, uh, against it. And not only have they taken the fruit, if there was any fruit at this time, not only have they taken the leaves, but you also have had the bark taken off these trees. So imagine this tree, this fig tree, that is just the bare wood underneath the bark. Um, and this is what has been left. And so this is a symbol of the nation at that time. And so the answer is that, yes, this is what the old men and the inhabitants of the land should be seeing at that time. This is the state of the nation. Um, and we saw that even the drunkards are forced to wake up to this reality because there is no vine anymore, and so there is no new wine. So the wine is cut off from the ma their mouth, and so the drunkards are forced to wake up to it. And the reason that Joel is telling them, um, pointing out to them, um, the situation of the land is to make them ask why. And he answers this in verse 8. Um, Lament like a virgin, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, Yahweh's ministers, mourn. And so we see that the reason that the nation is in such a state is that they have turned away from their God. They have stopped sacrificing to him and therefore the priests are mourning. Um, and then we are told, if we come down to verse 14, um, what they're told that they must do if they want this continual cycle to end of nations coming and taking whatever spoil there is. Verse 14. Sanctify ye a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God, and cry unto the Lord, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. And so they're told that if they want to stop this cycle, they need to gather together themselves to the temple, and they need to repent to God. We also see that there's this warning of the day of the Lord, which is at hand, and that the Almighty, um, that a destruction from the Almighty is about to come. So there's this, the nation, which is already symbolized by a tree that has lost everything, even its bark, there's a, a yet another destruction that is about to come upon it. Um, what is left is about to be destroyed. And then when we come across to chapter 2, we see... A number of changes um, between the chapter one and chapter two. First of all, we um, we see a change in tense. In chapter one, we've regularly seen the past tense. So we've seen that in verse seven, he hath laid my vine waste. He hath barked my fig tree. We see things in the past tense. Well, when we come to chapter two, we start to see um, things in the in the um, in the future tense. For example, verse seven of chapter two, they shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And so I would suggest that we have a clue here to exactly when in these events the prophet Joel is writing. He is writing um, at this point at the beginning of chapter 2. And another change we see when we come into chapter 2 is we start to read, um, we read immediately of Zion, which is of course Jerusalem, the, the capital city at that time. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. And in chapter 1, we've seen regularly um, agricultural lands, so the fields, we've read of vines, we've read of fig trees, we've read of apple trees, we've read of um, things that you'd expect to see in the countryside, not in the city. But when we come to chapter 2, we're finding that um, 
the the point the, fo the point of focus that Joel is talking about is now the city, not the land surrounding it. And chapters two starts with the idea of blowing the trumpet in Zion and sounding an alarm in the holy mountain. And um, when we think of the idea of blowing a trumpet in a city, we find that it refers to something that is done when an army is noticed outside the city, when an army is noticed on the horizon by the watchman. If we were to, for example, look at Ezekiel 33, we won't go there now, um, we read of Ezekiel saying that the job of the watchman is to watch out for the army coming and to blow the trumpet. And if he doesn't blow the trumpet, then when he sees the army, then the blood of that city is upon his head. So this idea of blowing the trumpet in Zion tells us that this is a point in time when an army is seen in the distance. And so this, um, this, the beginning of chapter 2, I would suggest, is the point when the army is now reaching Jerusalem. It's reaching the capital city. So this is the last stand um, of, of um, the people of Israel. Um, and so when we then continue reading through chapter 2, we started to see a description of this army um, that they could see from the, from, the, from the watchtower. They could see it devouring the, um, devouring the land, making it into a wilderness. And then in verse um, 7, we start to read of this army climbing up the wall. So it's attacking the city. And in verse 9, we read of the army running to and fro in the city. So they've now entered into the city. And then when we come down to verse um, verse 10, we read that the earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And this is, of course, the political heavens. This is the powers in the land at the time. And this is them falling and becoming dark. And so we see that when, we come to, when we've come to verse 10, this is the end of the Jewish rulership in Jerusalem. So the city is taken by this invading army. <clears throat> and so when we come then to verse 12, um, we start to see this appeal to them that they should repent. So verse 12, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And then after this point in chapter 2, we start to see um, well, a very sudden change in, in language. We have seen at the beginning of chapter 2, we've seen a um, description of destruction of the land, the city being taken. But while after this point, we read um, of the city being saved. So verse 15, we have blow the trumpet in Zion. They sanctify a fast. They call a solemn assembly. They do what they've been told to do if they want to end this cycle um, that has been coming upon them. And then when we come across the page um, to verse 18, we read that then will Yahweh be jealous for his land um, and will pity his people. Um, so we see a very, very sudden change here um, it, it, at the end of this section. And also then we have in verse 19, we have this um, idea of God sending forth this, the blessings. He sends corn, wine and oil. And he then ends their approach among the heathen. Very, very different from what we read at the beginning of the chapter. Um, and that can seem very strange. And we'll be looking at why that is um, in a moment. But I think what might be useful now to consider 
um, is what is all this um, referring to? When, when, is, when is Joel referring to in these first two chapters? And if you've looked at the book of Joel before, you may have found that it's very, very difficult to put a time period on the book of Joel. Um, it's, I would say, probably unique among the minor prophets um, in that it's, very, it's so hard to find out. Because many of them, for example, Amos, we're told exactly the time period. We're told that it's um, at the time of um, Jeroboam, the, uh, the son of Joash, and we're told it's three years before the earthquake. We're given all that detail. Well, with Joel, we don't have that information um, told to us immediately, at least. Um, and so the question is, is it important for us to find out when Joel is written? And with many prof- uh, prophetical books, especially those that are talking about events way into the future, um, it may not be um, very um, relevant to the, the fundamental message of the book. Um, and when we think of Joel, chapter 3, for example, a lot of that is even future um, today. And so I'd say for chapter 3, it may not be that important, but for chapters 1 and 2, um, which is talking about things about um, at the time that Joel was writing, I would suggest that it is something that will affect how we understand the book. For example, um, as, we, as we said at the beginning, um, yeah, um, Joel is asking, hath this been in your days? Well, how do you know what those days were? Um, it talks about an army coming upon the lands. Well, who is this army? And these are questions that I think we can only answer if we do manage to find out when Joel is written. And although we aren't told directly when Joel is written, I think there are a number of clues that make it clear that there is only one time period that really fits with the book of Joel. And we're going to look at just three clues um, this evening, which I think um, help to narrow it down at least a fair amount. And the first clue, which is a very simple one, is that it is written at a time when there is a temple in Jerusalem. Um, We read about the temple in verse 9. We also read about it in verse 16 of chapter 1. Um, But we also read of it in chapter 2, verse 17, where we read of priests and we read of an altar. So chapters 1 and 2 are written about a time when there is a temple in Jerusalem. Secondly, we know that it is at a time when there is an invasion coming upon the land. Um, We read in verse 6 of chapter 1 that a nation is come upon my land, strong and without number. We know it's a time just before a day of judgment because we read that the day of the Lord was at hand. So it is a time during an invasion but before um, the army has, uh, has reached the city of Jerusalem. And the third point is that it is at the end of a long period of regular destructions, a regular, um, regular attacks upon the nation. And we saw that from verse 4, when it talks about the, uh, the insects, which symbolise armies um, repeatedly coming upon them. And so with these three clues, generally um, speaking, people only come to two conclusions from this. Either this is written about the Assyrian army invading at the time of Hezekiah, or it is written um, about the Babylonian invasion at the time of Zedekiah. Um, and I think people then run into a problem if they try and apply one of, these, one of these time periods, one of these invasions, to the whole of chapter 2. Um, because I think we find that it is not possible to apply 
either of these time period, either of these um, events, to all of the events we read in chapters, chapter 2. If we try and fit the Babylonian invasion to it, um, at the beginning it makes a lot of sense um, when we consider the city being taken. But then when we come to, the, um, to later on in the chapter, when it talks about God's, uh, God being jealous for his land and saving them, um, it then no longer fits. And alternatively, if we consider, um, if we try and think about the Assyrian invasion, um, although it may seem to fit more with the end of the chapter when God is jealous for his land and saves them from this northern army, um, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense with um, the first part. Um, one point I'll just bring out just to really make this clear is verse 9 of chapter 2. Um, we read that they run to and fro in the city. This is the army, and the context is Jerusalem from verse 1. Um, and the prophet um, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says to him, um, I'll just read it, it's Isaiah 37 verse 33. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there. So he wouldn't even shoot an arrow at the city, um, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and my servant David's sake. And so Isaiah is clear um, that the king of Assyria was not to take um, the city. So I would suggest that for that reason, we can't apply the whole of chapter 2 to either of these time periods. And as I said, those three clues really make it so any other time period doesn't fit either. So how do we understand this? Well, I think if we do try and apply chapter, the whole of chapter 2 to one time period, we are misunderstanding the structure of chapter 2. So as I said, we have a very sudden change um, between verse um, 11 and verse 15, which is this call for repentance. And I think this call for repentance really ex tells us um, quite clearly, actually, um, why we have this sudden change. So just come with me to Joel 2. I'm just going to read um, from verse 11. Um, and obviously the context is it's been talking about this destruction of the city, the, the um, sun and moon and the stars falling, the political heavens falling. Verse 12 Therefore, also now, therefore, because of this destruction that is going to come towards you, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your hearts and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments, and turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent? And leave a blessing behind him, even a meal offering and a drink offering, unto the Lord your God. And so what the prophet is saying is there is a point in repenting at this point. Even at this late stage, even at this point when the trumpet is being blown and the army can be seen in the distance, there is still a point in repenting because God is merciful. God wants to repent him of the evil that he has just declared against the city God is a merciful God and so then when we come to verse 15 we find we have an echo of verse 1 because we read blow ye the trumpet in Zion sanctify a fast call a solemn assembly and as we read in verse 1 we had again blow ye the trumpet in Zion and if we were to try and consider this to be uh, chronological we would have a problem to explain why the trumpet is blown again in verse 15 
after um, the city has already been taken? What would be the point in blowing a trumpet after the army is already in the city? And so I think it makes a lot of sense that from verse 1 through to verse 12, uh, 1 ver to verse 11, sorry, we have um, the, the prophecy of the army invading when there is no repentance, and there's no mention of repentance during that period. We then have from verse 12 through to verse 14, this appeal to repent so this doesn't have to happen. And then from verse 15 to the end, we then have um, a prophecy of what would happen if they did repent. And so I think um, this therefore means that we should be only trying to apply um, a, a, a set of events that we know about to one of these two sections, to either the section when they re um, where they don't repent, if that is the case, which was the case with the time of the Babylonians, or um, if it is the Assyrians, we should apply it to the, uh, the section which talks about them repenting and being saved. Um, and when I've looked at this, I found that when you look at from verse 1 to, to, to verse 11, um, the events that we read very much fit with those of the Babylonian invasion. And while if you do look at the second section, which is talking about the repentance, there's a number of issues with trying to apply this to the, um, with the Assyrian invasion. First of all, God sends Isaiah the prophet to Hezekiah almost immediately that the army arrives and says, I'm going to save this city. There doesn't seem to be any, um, any condition put on it. Um, it also, also is the case that Hezekiah was a righteous king. And so this time at the time of Hezekiah wasn't particularly a, um, a wicked time for the nation of Judah. But in fact, it was one of the better times. Um, so it wouldn't require such a large-scale repentance as we read of. And also in verse 20, we're told about uh, a very specific area that this army would be moved to, and that doesn't fit with what we're told happened to the 185,000. And so, of course, I, this means to me, I think, uh, most likely that this is written at the time of the Babylonian invasion, um, at the time of Jeremiah. And if this were the case, we would expect, wouldn't we, to see a consistency between the various prophets that wrote at the same time, so at this time of the Babylonian invasion. And so it is no surprise that we find, when we look at Jeremiah particularly, um, a number of connections um, between them. And I was going to have a PowerPoint slide at this point, so we'll have to just, if you just come back with me to Jeremiah chapter 5, um, so Jeremiah chapter 4. And just notice the, the similar language that we have here. So we have Joel speaking to the people in Jerusalem. And we also have Jeremiah speaking to the people in Jerusalem. So in Jeremiah chapter 4, um, and we'll just read a, a sec, um, from verse 5 to 8. Declare ye in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, Blow ye the trumpet in the land. And we saw that twice, didn't we, in Joel chapter 2. Um, and cry 
cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go up to the defence cities. And they were told to make a solemn assembly, weren't they? And verse 6, set up the standard towards Zion, retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. And this army is described in Joel 2 as the northern army, isn't it? Verse 7, the lion is come from the thicket. And this army is described as having um, the cheek teeth of a great lion, isn't it? Um, And a destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate. And and the word desolate is mentioned throughout Joel. It's a key theme in Joel. And thy city shall be laid waste without inhabitant. For this, gird you with sackcloth, lament and howl. And that final bit is almost a quote from Joel 1 verse 13, which says um, almost the exact same thing. I'll just read it to you. Gird yourselves with sackcloth, RV, and lament ye priests, how ye minister the altar, come lie all night in sackcloth. And so then if you just turn over a few pages to Jeremiah chapter 12, I think it is, we see further um, connections with Joel. Um, Jeremiah 12, um, verse 4. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? And we read in Joel of the land mourneth. Verse 7, I have, for, I have forsaken mine house, I have left mine heritage. And repeatedly in Joel, we read of um, the people being the heritage. Um, for example, we say, um, the prayer they're told to say is, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thy heritage to reproach. Verse 10, many pastors have destroyed my vineyard, which we read in Joel. Um, at the end of the verse, um, the pleasant portion is a desolate wilderness. We read that again in Joel. The army would make um, the Garden of Eden, it says, like a desolate wilderness. Um, and if I had the PowerPoint, I could show you a few more. Um, if you're interested, I can show you the slide afterwards on my computer. Um, and there's a few, just two more I'd like to show you that aren't necessarily direct links, but actually potentially Joel playing on the language of of Jeremiah and other um, prophets at the time. So just come to Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 1. Jeremiah is told, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know and seek in the broad places thereof, if ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. And so what Jeremiah is told to do is to run to and fro in the city, looking for one person that was righteous. And of course, because he couldn't, that is why the Babylonian invasion occurred. And when we come to Joel 2 and verse 9, we read that this army runs to and fro in the city. And so I would, what I would suggest is because when Jeremiah ran to and fro in the city he, and he could not find any righteous, so it is the judgment, the judgments of God, this army run to and fro in the city. Um, and of course another prophet that was speaking at the time of Jeremiah and I believe Joel is the prophet Ezekiel. And when we see in Joel 2, verse 17, um, we, we read, Let the priests and ministers of Yahweh weep between the porch and the altar. And if we look in scripture at this um, expression, the porch and the altar, 
there's only one other occasion in scripture that we read of the port of something happening between the porch and the altar and it's in Ezekiel chapter 8 And this is the vision, of course, of Ezekiel. And we're told in verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 8, if I can find it, um, that it is. it comes to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, and the fifth day of the month. And if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, you see that the time periods in Ezekiel in these first few chapters seem to be dating from the second captivity. So that would put this chapter... But just before, well, about five years before, the final invasion of the Babylonians. So just at the point where we believe that Joel was written. And you may be familiar with this vision. It's the occasion where Ezekiel is told to dig through the wall and to see the abominations that are done um, in Jerusalem. Let's just go in at verse 6. He said, furthermore unto me, son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary. But turn ye yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. So he's saying, you see this evil that they do, but, but you haven't seen it. You haven't seen, haven't seen anything yet. There's worse that they do. Um, verse 7. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And he said unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said to me, go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw and behold every form of creeping beast, creeping thing, an abominable beast and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood um, Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, and every man his censer in his hand and a thick cloud of incense went up. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chamber of his imagery. For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. And he said unto me, Turn ye yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than they do here. So he says, There's worse to see. Um, Verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of Yahweh's house, and behold... At the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar. So that same, that's that expression, between the porch and the altar. There were five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they worshipped the sun toward the east. And he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing for the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? And notice the location is important. For they have filled the land with violence and have provoked me to... and have returned to provoke me to anger and lo they put the branch to their nose so here we see ezekiel being shown the abominations of the land and each time you'll see that it gets closer and closer to the temple and finally the worst one of all is that they are worshiping the sun god between the porch and the altar this is the worst sin that they committed and this is the reason um, that this babylonian invasion um, was to come against them And so when we then consider Joel again and see that they're told that they would be um, repenting and crying to God between the porch and the altar. And as I said, this is the only other occasion where we read um, of something happening between the porch and the altar. 
we see that God is saying, and through the prophet Joel, that they needed to repent um, for all of their sins up to the very worst, up to the sacrificing to the sun god and worshipping the sun god um, between the porch and the altar. And so what we see here is Joel is picking up on events that happened around that time um, and picking up on words of the other prophets of the time, which again supports the idea that this is written at the time of the Babylonians. And of course we know that at the time of the Babylonians um, there was no repentance, was there? And so this offer of forgiveness and salvation that we read of um, from verse 15 to the end um, was not taken and did not happen at that time. But does this mean that we should then just forget about the rest of this chapter? Is it, does it mean that um, it's really only the first half of the chapter that is of any interest to us because the rest is something that never happened and never will? Well, I would say that's not the case because I believe that this is reserved for a time in the future when there will be another northern army that attack them again. But this time they will be ready to mourn. They will be ready to fast. And they'll be ready to weep before their God. Come with me to Zechariah chapter 12. This is, of course, after the Gogian invasion, um, which, of course, um, is in the future to us, um, when Jerusalem will again be under attack. Zechariah 12 and verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they pierced and shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadad Rimmon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart. All the families that remain, every, part, every family apart, and their wives apart. So we see that there is a time in the future when um, Jerusalem will again be attacked by a northern army, but they will be willing to repent in the way required of them in Joel, that they will be weeping and mourning, all of them from the least even to the greatest. And just come back with me to Joel 2 and just have a look at this, the type of repentance that God is requiring of them. Um, go in at, we'll go in at verse 15. Um, actually verse 16 gather the, gather the people sanctify the congregation assemble the elders gather the children and those that suck the breast so this is all the way from the elders all the way down to the children all the way down to those that suck the breasts let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and let the bride go out of her closet and of course the bridegroom and the bride it's the most private time. It's the time that they, that's most important to them so that they can go away to the chamber and to the closet. And what the prophet is saying is there isn't time for that. They must come forth out of, those, out of their chamber because there is not time. They have to repent now. It has to be from the youngest 
all the way to the oldest. It has to be every single person, even those that are just married. Um, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep before the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Yahweh, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? And that is the repentance that we will see of the people of Israel at the time when, um, when, when the Gogian host comes against them. And in verse 18 we read, then will the Lord be jealous for his land and will pity his people. And when we think of Ezekiel 38, we read of God's fury coming up in his face um, when he's jealous for his land. And we read, when we think of um, Ezekiel 39, we read of the stink of Go coming up, don't we? And in verse 20 of Joel 2, we read of the stink coming up, just like we read in Ezekiel 39. And we also see that in, here in Joel, we read that, he will be, that they will be driven away from the land um, and plagued into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the East Sea and his hinder part toward the Uttermost Sea. And if we were to look in Daniel 11 at the, the part that we think con, um, concerns the Gogan invasion, we find that, they are, they, that, that, that the end comes when he is between the seas. And so I believe that this latter part of the chapter of, of Joel 2 refers to the future from now. Um, and therefore, these things will occur um, just before the kingdom age. So we're now going to just um, pull our thoughts together. We saw in chapter 2 that there was this choice for the people, didn't we? They could continue on their way. They could continue... Um, to not serve God they continue without repenting but when the day of the Lord came and the day of the Lord still would come they would be destroyed or taken to Babylon along with many of the people in the land it was a great day of judgment but they also had the choice that they could turn to God they could repent because God is full of mercy even at this late point he wanted to offer them salvation the day of the Lord didn't have to be a day of destruction for them. It could have been a day of salvation to them. And so when we consider this, when we think of the day of the Lord, which is surely to come very soon, will that day be a day of destruction for ourselves? Or will it be a day of hope? A day when we can see all these things being fulfilled, um, the land being given her strength back again, the fats and the oils and the wine, um, and the time when Israel and God's people will no longer be ashamed. Will that be what the day of the Lord means for us? Um, so what is the choice that we are making? Will this day of the Lord be a day of darkness and gloominess, as we read um, in verse 2 of chapter, of chapter 2? Or will it be this time of rejoicing? For God will give again the rains, and he will bless with all the things that uh, are needed. And God, God's people will no longer be ashamed. And so, of course, we pray for that time when Israel will turn to their God, when they will mourn and weep before him and repent. And that time will be um, when Judah will dwell forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation, for Yahweh will dwell in Zion. Thank you.